You're listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the University of Strathclyde's podcast on innovation and technology. Hello and welcome to this edition of Innovate Strathclyde, the home of useful listening. I'm Amanda Carpenter and I'm delighted to be sharing the hosting of this podcast with Dr. Chris White. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you, Amanda? Yeah, I'm good, I think. And I'm really excited that we know, we've made it to episode two. And this whole series of podcasts that really look at the innovative thinking and expertise at the university and highlight how Strathclyde is working across sectors and communities to find dynamic and practical solutions to some of the challenges of climate change. And today we're really talking about one of those major topics, aren't we? Power and energy and how we approach that in this very complicated debate. We're lucky to be joined by our two guests, Dr. Jacqueline Redmond, who's Executive Director of PNDC, and Professor Stuart Galloway, who's the Professor of Advanced Electrical Systems at the University of Strathclyde. Jacqueline and Stuart, hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having us. Hey. Yeah. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Chris. Chris, why is this such an important subject? It's a good question, Amanda. The energy transition, I think, has been front and centre in the sort of national discussion around how we transition to net zero, in particular over the last couple of decades. We've seen unprecedented change across the sector, the infrastructure and the technology that sits behind it, uh, especially with the growth in uh, onshore and offshore renewable energy, uh, wind, of course, in, in, in particular. And it's going to be the cornerstone of how we transition to a net zero economy over the next couple of decades. But with that, of course, is therefore going to see a major change, a lot of upheaval in how we make our energy, how we store it, how we move it around. And therefore, the infrastructure, the technology, everything that underpins that is going to see an awful lot of change over the next couple of decades. So it's a vital piece of the puzzle of how we're going to get to net zero by 2050 or so. And how that mixes up with other sectors as well, beyond just the the energy sector, is, of course, uh, just as crucial as as how this sector itself is going to transition over to there. So this second podcast, the second episode, is a crucial part of of our story around how to get to net zero. So I guess I can probably open the the questions to our guests very much on, on that theme, starting with a nice, easy question, which is probably just around, well, this is going to be a major, a complex effort, because it can be cross sectoral over the next 20 to 30 years. Where does this sector sit? What, 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 is, what is the role of this sector um, over the next 20, 30 years? What changes are we likely to see? I think a good place to start is to look at some of the publications that have come out from the Committee for Climate Change. And what they will tell you is when you look at the changes that we need to deliver, only 38% of it actually is driven by technology. Um, a further 53% is a combination of technology and societal changes, and then the remainder is made up by societal changes. But really positively, they also tell you that the change that we require through technology is actually with technology that we know about today. And that's really positive because you also hope there's more technology coming that we don't know about yet that's actually going to help us advance quicker. And another thing that also encourages me is that when you, when you look at their report, what they're telling us is that in 2008, when we first committed to an 80% reduction, they said it would cost between 1% to 2% of GDP. They're saying now we can get to net zero by 2050 and 2045 in Scotland, and it's still only going to cost us between 1% to 2% of GDP. So that shows you what the role of innovation, particularly in the energy sector, has opened up for us in, in regards to possibilities of either advancing how fast we move to the net zero target 
or even going beyond net zero. Jacqueline's absolutely right. I think um, there's you know there's some ambitious targets there really, but it would, it's going to require a sort of significant amount of change. And I think I would just like to maybe emphasise the point that she was making there about the technology side of things. I think all the largely all the technologies that we need to, to achieve net zero are already here. It's just they haven't sort of been purposed to that effect, you know, to try and actually meet those targets. So um, you do hear people mentioning that um, we don't quite have all of these things, but I think it really should be expressed, you know, a bit more like Jacqueline said, that we'll actually find out new things on the way and they will come, but we're not necessarily waiting for those to appear where, you know, we can purpose what we have already uh, at these targets. Stuart, when you say they exist, what kind of technologies are we talking about? Because there may be people who are not as aware of what sure. some of the ideas I mean, are. It, it could be. So there's, you know, think that sort of technological solutions to do with sort of how we produce and, and to a certain extent consume energy, but also how it's transported to and from our homes. But then there's new things like measurement technology, uh, which might be, need to be placed maybe in different parts of the system where it's not other, you know, not currently done and how you might use that information to make better uh, use of uh, information and therefore make decisions about how you could use energy. So it's a mixture of kind of cross-sectoral things, I think. Uh, some of it is quite fundamental, but other parts of it are really just about looking at things in a little bit more detail and using the information that you can gain from that. Stuart, I wonder whether you can give us a bit of an idea of the scale of what mm -hmm. we're talking about here. It's, yeah. We talk about change, transition, these are all nice buzzwords, but what do we really mean when we're talking about transitioning our whole sector over to, to net zero? What, what is the scale of the planned changes that, that we're likely to see? So, um, well, in terms of electrical systems, I think there's been a, there has been a big shift in the sort of philosophy about how we sort of produce and then uh, use energy over the last couple of decades, really. But that's going to need to sort of step up a bit more again. I mean, we're really challenging the way that um, electrical systems have been conceived and produced. Historically, that has been about building large fossil fuel plants co close to load centres, like big cities. And then you then, you know, the, you, you sort of match those two things together a little bit. But now we're seeing more, a shift away from, a significant shift away uh, from fossil fuel-based generation uh, to more renewable, and then we're really looking at a fully renewably dominant system. And so but in doing that, you're uh, changing the architecture of the network as well in some ways how it's used. So that large fossil fuel plant model, the original conceived plant, yeah, that's a top-down approach, large plants connected at higher voltage levels, and then that, that energy would flow down through the system all the way to our homes. But now you're seeing the system being used it's still being used in that way, but the connections really are about renewable plant, offshore and onshore wind. But then you're also seeing generation being located closer to our homes. So that could be solar panels on people's roofs. Uh, it might be sort of a so CHP plant or local wind or something like that. But that's a change if you understand what I mean, because now you have energy produced and consumed locally, and then the ability to perhaps like re-inject it into the network so you get reverse power flow. So it's challenging the system architecture really from you know top to bottom. And if I could just sort of carry on with that, I think that's that's really interesting what Stuart's saying. And there's some buzzwords that are floating around the industry that people might come across, like whole energy systems. Mm. So that's looking at the sort of the complex from you know the production to the consumption and multi-vector energy systems as well. And I think that's 
that's for, for, for PNDC, that's particularly an interesting topic because as we've already said, you know, we know the technologies, we've got an idea of the technologies that will help us decarbonize the energy system. But what we're not 100% sure is how they'll interact with each other, how you'll see the signals so that a consumer knows whether or not they're using a hydrogen heating system or they're using a battery, when to charge their electric vehicle. And I think that's when you'll hear, and I get really quite excited about this, or the, geeky, the geekiness of it. But that's what really is going to be the key to actually being able to drive net zero, is understanding how they're all going to interlink with each other. And just to say, you mentioned scale, Chris. And I think that the scale is you know, pretty dramatic. It's a, it's a fundamental change across the system, but it's building on that transition we've been making to renewables over the last couple of decades, really. But it's going to be reach much closer to our homes or you know, places where we live and work. And it's going to, I think energy is going to be made more visible in that sense. It's going to be a, a, more, you know, a much greater part of our life, like lives, I think, of sort of everyday citizens, rather than it just being something that happens and you just consume energy. I think people need to take a bigger role in it. You so touched on what was going to be my next question, I suppose, really, which is, are we going, we, as in the general population, are we going to notice this change? And, and you, you sort of touched on it there, really, which it's going to become more visible. It, we're not just talking about a change of our architecture of the infrastructure. It's the visible face. It's our connection to that infrastructure that I think we're also going to see a change to. I think that's a huge question. And funnily enough, one I was debating last night with my daughter, because it also leads us to this just transition of, are we going to tell you know, the, the common person in the street, you need to change your electric vehicle and you need to recycle? Is that enough? It's not enough. So I think there will be changes to our lives, but they'll happen in a way. I mean, how many of us have got Alexa in our lives now? And how many of us walking down the street miss actually you know, to ask Alexa a quick question about where we're going? So the, the, the change, if we get it correct, will, will not be intrusive. It'll be, an, it'll be an obvious and automatic change and one that we adapt to quite quickly. But I think the, the larger changes come from more of a sort of an infrastructural government, large industry change. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think I agree with Jacqueline. There. They'll be, they, that would be harder to achieve, I think, uh, in some ways. I believe that there is a very much a sort of winning hearts and minds aspect to this, really, for people in general, because I think without them, without people's understanding and involvement in this sort of transition, it really is it's not going to take hold. And I think uh, the governments are, you know, are, are challenged sort of, you know, internationally as well as sort of Scottish and national governments about what the right approach to this is, I think. And I think, I think we probably could agree amongst ourselves that there's not going to be one single message that's going to actually turn everybody to point in the same direction. It's going to be a number of different ways. So some of it will be fiscal, some of it will be about carbon, you know, about saving the planet. Uh, other parts of it might just be about just sort of more of a community aspect. People like to sort of invest in, you know, you know, the community that's around them and not just and feel like they're part of something, but part of something that's quite close to them, local rather than a sort of national thing that is a bit sort of faceless. So I think, you know, there's a whole a whole sort of swathe of different approaches really that'll that'll help with this. And then, you know, I mean, just if we can think for those that are old enough, perhaps you can think back that to things like, you know, catalytic converters being added to cars. That just felt like it kind of just happened overnight. It was just a, you know, it was legislation that came in and it was mandated. And the similar things like the like the removal of tungsten filament bulbs. So now we all use LED bulbs in our homes and things like that. But that's just 
you know, in some ways that's been kind of mandated. So I think uh, without really being very specific about what I have in mind for net zero, I think there'll be elements of that as well. You know, there'll be, we're just going to have to get behind this and do it um, as well as trying to turn people, you know, uh, to get them to take part. That raises in my head, Stuart, this whole issue of a just transition mm. around energy. And I know you've got colleagues at the university looking at this specifically because up till now, it's tended to be those of us who perhaps can afford to make decisions about a green tariff for our energy, for example, or an electric car or a greener lifestyle. Because at the moment, many of that those products and those sources come with a kind of premium price tag. Yeah. How are we going to tackle that? Because that has to be a key part of, of making this energy revolution work. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, education, I can't help but notice that the Scottish government have some adverts to do with net zero and things on television at the moment, which I think should be applauded. You know, I think leading up to the COP26, which is happening later this year, I think that's good to get that into the sort of public narrative. But in, I think um, the just transition, it certainly does focus on trying to include everybody and bring everybody along. And I think how that can be done is definitely around education, but also about things like wealth creation and jobs, because I think if people can have a role, you know, it's not just about um, doing it. It's about trying to work out how as a nation we can sort of benefit from it in terms of carbon, but in terms of sort of, you know, wealth creation through jobs and so forth, as well as sort of new opportunities that might emerge. And it's actually trying to understand how people might fit into that. So I think many of us might have heard of like how computers perhaps are going to sort of, or automation is going to displace many jobs as we look forward into the future. So I think in part, the just transition is to be inclusive, but it's also to try and help understand what are the next opportunities for us and how can people be re-skilled to fit into that, basically, to get jobs and careers, basically, from it. I think that that's a really good point, Stuart, because um, many years ago, I was involved in developing a, a carbon capture and storage project in mm -hmm. Scotland. And I had actually put together an international consortium that involved a Chinese entity, a Middle East company and a, another European energy company. And the idea was that this would have been the first uh, retrofitted uh, carbon capture storage onto an existing fossil fuel station. And then we were going to export that British know-how and develop it in China and in the Middle East. And unfortunately, at that point, uh, the, the, the government withdrew the funding, which was a, which was a disappointment. And then the Chinese went off and have just grown the industry themselves. So I think, you know, this time round, th this idea of green jobs, you know, we, we can we can drag our heels and say it's not right. We, we shouldn't be committing ourselves to um, strenuous targets because we disadvantage our industry. It should be the opposite. We should be leading from the front and grabbing the space for us that we can develop that unique skill and insight that then we export beyond the shores of the UK. So the door is wide open for us. We've got an advantage. We're early starters. We should be grabbing it. Sure. And Scotland has a very strong international reputation for energy and green and uh, you know technology and the like and know-how. Uh, and so we should definitely capitalise on that. Jacqueline, also you're doing that, aren't you, at your centre at the PNDC? I mean, you're actually getting together cross-sector, so it isn't just about university thinking and research and innovation. It's actually working with communities and with energy companies themselves, isn't it? And, and that, that kind of cross-sector approach is key to this changing the way we deliver, isn't it? I mean, the work that you're leading on and the other work that Stuart's obviously doing too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we, we have that sort of the nexus of, sort of academic industry and government 
um, because you can't make you can't make it happen alone. We need to collaborate to go forward. We're currently developing a proposal with the Energy Systems Catapult, our WESA proposal, which is a whole energy systems accelerator. And I'm glad I introduced whole energy earlier. And it's really quite interesting because what we're doing is actually um, we have like 200 plus homes that we'll try new technology out on. And then the, the utility operators get to see how people react to that. And then we work with the small medium enterprise companies that are developing new technology. So everyone gets that feedback loop of, is this technology useful? Is it intrusive within the home? What's going to be the impact? And you sort of, you have that virtuous cycle where people learn from each other. Yeah, sure. And I think that can give a platform for you know, SMEs and companies to develop their technology around because they themselves are less clear on um, what people really want, really, and how they understand, you know, the technology might be in their homes. I think to a certain extent, from the university point of view, we've tried to feed into that, actually, in terms of design as well as trying to understand how people use energy. But you can't help, it needs to move on from university research projects significantly. You know, you can't have a PC sitting in behind your sofa trying to monitor various bits and pieces. It really needs to sort of uh, scale up from that. And, and evolve. Just thinking then about what you were just saying there, Jacqueline, about the opportunities, I guess, for the UK. But I was wondering, is, is there something specific about the setup we have here in Scotland that perhaps puts Scotland at a particular advantage uh, in the renewable energy space and, the, and the, the, the transition? Yeah, absolutely. I think potentially the Orion project that is uh, being kicked off in Shetland is an interesting opportunity because what we have there is a community that is currently producing more energy than it actually needs. So the actual renewable energy is almost wasted. So what they're looking to develop is more a hydrogen economy where they'll actually use their current onshore wind power. They're developing offshore wind. They'll use that to generate heat for domestic purposes on the islands. They'll use it to generate hydrogen to fuel the terminal on the islands. And then going forward, as the growth of wind farms continue and we produce more green hydrogen, what they're actually going to be looking at doing is repurposing current oil installations offshore to actually create that hydrogen and then potentially export it. So I think it's the, it's the combination of the, the excess wind we almost have, the emergence of the hydrogen economy. Somebody once said to me that, you know, Scotland is small enough to be connected, but big enough to make a difference. And I, that, that, I really like that idea that, you know, we work so well together and we have this opportunity primarily through wind, but we also have the storage capability now, the production of hydrogen, the, the, the deep harbours that will allow these large vessels to come in, that allows us actually to de-risk the hydrogen economy in the way that almost, let's say, the German economy de-risked solar panels 10 years ago. Mm, mm. Jacqueline, I'm sorry, I probably should know, but what is green hydrogen? Because there's a lot of talk about hydrogen being banded about. So, you yes, know, and, 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 and what is what is non-green hydrogen for that matter? <laughs> Right. So um, if, if you make, now you're, you'll be pushing my technology here, but if, if you make hydrogen the way we currently make hydrogen, which is sort of basically fossil fuel based, that's, I think called, we call that grey hydrogen. Yeah. The next step is what they call blue hydrogen, which is when you make it that way, but you capture the carbon or the CO2 that's been generated with it. And that's where CCS comes in. So if you're creating hydrogen in the typical way, but then capturing the, the greenhouse gases associated with it, that's blue. And then green hydrogen is what we're all aspiring to, is when you use the technology or energy generated by wind to create the, the hydrogen. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and just another question that people always ask, a lot of wind is just inshore or, or offshore. 
So by definition is round the outside of the UK, uh, the, the, the British Isles. So, so how do we get it from there into somebody's home if they're in the middle of an urban conurbation, for example? So if we haven't got mm-hmm. that model that Stuart was talking about where we've got a big power plant sitting on the edge of a big city. How mm-hmm. do we actually get it across? Because isn't so, the problem storage and transmission? Well, it's a mixture of things. It's still the same model. It's just that the, the generation isn't co-located next to the city. So you then you, you produce the power offshore from wind, for example, and then you move it on into the sort of mainland grid. So you you know you bring it to shore, and then you move it through the different sort of trans- the voltage levels on the system, which you know starts at transmission and moves down through steps. But eventually that ends up in our homes. So it's just been produced in a different place and moved around. And the reason why things are were brought adjacent to each other originally is to reduce the sort of losses, electrical losses that you get in the system. So there will be sort of, and that's just created by thermal, like heating up of cables and so forth. So, um, you know, these are unavoidable things to do with physics, but we will need to kind of compensate for elements of that really as we sort of produce energy and move it around. Uh, but this is done on a day-to-day basis anyway. It's nothing new. It's just, it's the, it's as Jacqueline said, it's the source of the generation that's changing to produce the green hydrogen, basically. So it's done purely from renewable sources rather, with, rather than any other of these hybrid mixes or what have you. And what we're seeing is as the energy systems evolve and, and people are able to install, let's say, smaller installations as the, the economies come down, what we're managing to do is offset infrastructure reinforcement, i.e. building more big wires to connect to all, sure. because in Scotland we see on our islands, you know, we're able to generate uh, currently with wind, hopefully one day with tidal and, and wave, and store the energy until people need it. The way we're going to in the future see the biggest impact in that is where there currently aren't national infrastructure or grids. So we're, you know, we're, we're looking at countries in Africa and the internals of India, that kind of place, where, where it's really interesting that previously these were the guys that leapfrog the, the hardwire phone and went straight to mobile phone because they didn't have the infrastructure. They're going to do the same with electric grids as well. They're going to be able to, we're going to be able to provide a secure energy system to remote communities that don't need to have large infrastructure wires connecting them. Um, and that's that connection of multiple sources of energy being able to be stored and then used when required. Mm-hmm. I was struck by something that you said at the beginning, Jacqueline, about the report from the Climate Change Committee, when actually the biggest chunk of activity is around changing people's attitudes, that 58% or whatever it was, where it's both innovation, technology and attitude change. And I'm, I hear from time to time people saying, oh, renewables are great. You know, it's lovely to have, a, a, you know, turbines out at sea. And then they resist with every fibre of their being the building of a new substation, for example, in just in land, which is generally on the coast, very often very attractive, where people have homes. And so there's this mismatch, isn't there, between the green and renewable energy coming into our system and then people's actual lack of willingness to adapt and change and accept that they may have to have a a substation close to them, right in the middle of a rural part of the country, for example, in order to benefit from this. So how are we going to tackle some of that cultural change? Because I know for those of us who are convinced this isn't a complicated conversation to have, but many, many people are not yet on board with this as an idea. Jackie mentions the stat, but you know, I, I anybody and Chris too. I mean, because this seems to me to be the intractable problem. You, we've got the technology, we've got the innovation. It's the people we've got to change, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, what you're describing is nimbyism, obviously, not in my backyard, as the Americans might say. Mm. And I think there's always elements of that just in, in, in where you see any sort of change, really, I would say. So as long as it's fine, I really want to have this, but it's okay if it's somewhere else, basically. I don't have to look at it. 
But I think uh, people will get, so this might come back to things that they want to change. So they'll get, they understand why maybe it's needed a bit more clearly and maybe they'll be prepared to sort of accept it a bit more readily, let's say. There might be a great a kind of consensus, like, you know, so it moves away from individuals and it's more about, in the, you know, these are the types of things we're trying to achieve. And there's a, maybe a maybe more of a sort of local vision could be sort of put in place. Maybe local authorities or as well as the government could have a way of sort of trying to under, let people understand how best they could exploit the energy resources in their area, which might change from area to area. And, you know, that's something for some people to get behind. But then there also might be things, sort of structural changes that are essential. And these are the, that then brings you back to the sort of mandated thing. So there might be a mixture. I mean, many changes that have happened on, on the UK systems have been from a technical point of view, when I say many, some technical point of view have been straightforward to understand and conceive what the solution might be. But then there's been various legal challenges that have slowed them down. You know, so you might spend five years in the courts trying to build a new transmission line, for example. So the, the, the engineering side of things, it's quite obvious what's needed. But then actually, as you suggest, you end up on a more complex set of arrangements involving various legal bodies and things. So there is there is barriers there in different ways, that is for sure. Uh, but, you know, they, they need to be sort of managed and overcome positively uh, for climate change. I'm going to introduce another word, another buzzword in here, which is roadmap. Because everything has a roadmap attached to it these days, uh, whether mm -hmm. that's COVID or whether that's the net zero transition that we're talking about here. Hasn't all of this been planned out? Haven't we got a route forward that we're all going to follow? Or am I just being slightly facetious and really posing the question that we don't really have a roadmap yet? What are our pathways? What is the transition really going to look like? Mm. Well, I do, I do think we have some roadmaps and, and many countries have their sort of climate plans with a plan against it. So I think a roadmap, I take a roadmap to mean that there's sort of various staging points where you need some like technological change or adoptions maybe that need to happen. It's not just a plan, it's more than that. You need things to happen around it. So I think we do have these things. There's various, there's various scenarios that have been produced by people. You see how their sectors might evolve. So some, some of these have been produced for, uh, for, for networks by for national grid uh, system operator, energy system operator, for example, that see how they see things evolving. But I do believe we we need to be flexible in how we see that. So we should see these as a sort of a general trajectory, and we're going to move forward along these paths. But to a certain degree, they can branch or you know bifurcate. So who could have imagined that America was going to withdraw from the climate change uh, stuff under the previous administration? That wouldn't, I think, be easily anticipated because it seemed like they were very committed to it. So, I mean, that's that's a bit of a branching point, really, from achieving things on a sort of international stage. So I think we do have these roadmaps. I think we are, broadly speaking, moving along these paths, but there's some big steps that are needed to for adoption and so forth for it to really take hold and to get our shoulder behind it and move it forward, I think. I think the, the roadmaps are as Stuart said, a good way for us to sort of check in occasionally to make sure that we're heading in the right direction at the right speed. But again, if I refer back to the, the CCC report, the, the Committee for Climate Change report, one of the, or two of the stats that I just terrified me was that we needed to convert 20,000 homes every week from now until 2050 uh, to, to sort of the lower carbon heating options mm -hmm. if we're going to hit 2050. And we've got to convert 30,000 cars every week uh, to low, low emissions. But then I pause and I think, well, when they produced that roadmap, had they anticipated COVID? 
Because what COVID has managed to achieve in our behavioural changes is something that we have never assumed we could manage to get so quickly for driven by climate change mm -hmm. targets. So what I'm really curious about is, yes, of course, there will be a return to somewhat normal. But now that large organisations have been able to demonstrate how people can work remotely and learn remotely, do we need to convert 30,000 cars if people are actually not going to make 30,000 journeys uh, a week? And then that brings me around to other, other parts of technology that can potentially enable that, you know, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, where people can actually now go and inspect, you know, large uh, installations, oil installations, and actually make the assessment and do their physical work almost in a in body experience, but again, thereby reduces our need to travel. So the roadmaps are great, but you do have to stop and to stop. It's like any roadmap, you've got to stop and look around and say, am I where yeah. I thought I was? And yes. now where do I go forward? Yes, I think it's an interesting, a very interesting thing you said there, Jacqueline, about how the pandemic, uh, one of the things it has given us is an insight into some climate change aspects, really, because people are travelling less. Um, you've got um, a, perhaps changes in the dynamics of where the energy is being consumed, because we're all sitting in our homes. There's still a net energy cost to that, but it's just been you know, put in different places. And even things like food and how that's been sort of apportioned and distributed and supplied, I think there's been different aspects to that as well. So, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I might be right in saying we've seen dips in some of the carbon sort of targets as a result of things to do with pandemic, but then the, one might see a partial, a full return to where we were. I think that that's kind of remains to be seen really, I think, because, and it's, you know, guided by things like Jacqueline mentioned about home working and uh, changes in just how we do things a bit. I mean, I think that I think you're right, Jacqueline, about the cars and the travel, but the homes are the big question, aren't they? And yeah. and if we have got to convert, you know, twenty thousand homes a week to renewable energy, we need policy and government commitment to make that happen because nobody is going to do that without an incentive or without some financial support well not nobody but very few people most well, people right. couldn't possibly afford to put i mean so she who's just installed an air source heat pump into her her new well home uh, without the government grant because it didn't come through so so we've got we've really got to push policymakers and government mm -hmm to make this happen because I think you're right, you know, COVID has changed behaviours, but people could see quite clearly in their own families and their own communities, the impact of the pandemic. They could see people being sick mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sadly dying. They cannot make that same correlation with climate change. You know, oh, it's got a bit hotter in the summer. It's a bit more windy in the winter and a bit wetter. People cannot see that climate change is potentially killing them. Even mm -hmm. when we see things in, you know, in parts of North America and Canada with intense heat. So there's, yeah, it's very difficult to get people to make a direct correlation between what is happening in their lives and the bigger issue of climate change and to take that step without some form of government incentives some policies some structure. So in enabling for people to make those transitions that we all need to make. Yes, and I think you're right. You're absolutely right, Amanda. It's a package of all of that in some way, really. It's got a positive, very positive narrative. It's got maybe sort of... A, individuals who people can sort of gravitate around to think you know people value their opinions and things like that so i think you know it's a whole suite of things i think one of the things you didn't mention there was about the ability for people to act like the number of installers who could actually fit these things at those sorts of levels i mean these are not unknown problems and some of the figures that are that are like advertised they might seem a bit 
if, in isolation, they seem a bit crazy because we can all laugh and say, well, how are we going to manage that? Because we're not, you know, the, you know, today's another day where 30,000 heat pumps are not being installed, basically. would be one way to see it. But actually, what it's trying to give us a sense of as well is the scale of the challenge that we've got because these numbers are posted because what they're telling us is if we're to meet our climate level targets in this across these different sectors, this is what we need to do in terms of electrifying or decarbonizing heat. So, you know, despite it seeming slightly silly really to be saying, we're going to tell you a target that we clearly can't achieve just immediately, at least it's given you a sense of the challenge really. And I think that's one of the ways that it should uh, be interpreted. And then we should think, what is it we actually really should be doing? So we should be training people. We should be providing policy and sort of financial incentives to accelerate these things. We are seeing, you know, if the Scottish government has their LHEs programme, so local heat and energy efficiency strategy, which is a sort of multi-parliament sort of commitment, and they're really targeting some of these areas. And it's not just a sort of one thing that will span one parliament. They'll try and sustain it. Uh, and so there are, there are things that are positively happening, but it's not the complete package yet. That is for sure. And I think part of that is because they need sort of, you know, private sector investment and, and, you know, to come in and sort of take hold of these things. Um, you know, I think one people might say that one of the reasons they don't have a, even people who are relatively wealthy don't have a, a, a like an electric vehicle is because they're still worried about things like range anxiety and where will I charge it? Or I've got a very nice house, but I don't actually have a driveway. I've got, I'd have to run a cable across the street and so forth. So there are, there, you know, there's lots of different parts to that really that need to be resolved, I think. But I'm positive and confident that, that is that we are on that trajectory. I mean, just in the last week, the electricity distribution operators in the UK, they've all published their draft plans for how they're going to sort of manage and invest in the network uh, over the next sort of period. So these are things, these are, these are called the you know, Rio ED2 plans. And they say how much it's going to cost, how they're going to what they where they're going to reinforce or strengthen the network and why they might need to do that. And where they might, they also talk now about how they're going to try and exploit some of the flexibilities that are available in the system to help manage it. So they, they are obliged to do this. And these are these plans are reviewed by the regulator of GEM. And I'm sure there'll be some sort of, uh, and each of them have variations on it, but all of them, all of 14 uh, DNOs really have to do this. And they're all faced with the same challenges about electrification of heat and transport and how they're going to make networks ready for that, and then how they're going to operate the system, and then how they will recover their costs from the system in order to facilitate that. So that's what these plans are about. And they're currently, it's interesting to see them in draft because people are emphasizing slightly different things uh, across the different sort of DNO regions. But then that's partly because they've got, a, they see things slightly differently in their areas. So people who are in the really in the north of Scotland, but it's much more rural, you know, um, less sort of population density, you'd imagine that would have a very different sort of set of circumstances, you know, to the Midlands or, you know, London or something like that, really. So it's no surprise there are sort of some variations between the DNOs, I think, because they've got different types of challenges. With the risk of sounding too uh, optimistic, I, I, I think there is a lot of optimism, actually, we can draw, even just from our conversation here today, because it's a, a wonderful insight into where this sector is and I think where it's going to go in the next few decades. But the one real positive thought that I, I'm sort of taking away from this is using Jacqueline's example there of 
how we've come out of or are coming out of COVID and the kind of green recovery, build back better, those sort of agenda pieces and the rapid change we've seen and progress, I guess we could probably term that as. One real positive is in the last year, maybe a couple of years, net zero and the transition to a net zero economy has transitioned into our everyday conversation quicker than I think probably any of us could ever have envisaged in part probably because of COVID and the experiences that that's brought, mm. but also, of course, because of the, the real need, the very real need to get carbon out of our economy and, and everything that, that we do. So while we might not have all the roadmaps, we might not have all of the plans in place, I think, without, again, risking to sound too optimistic, I think there, there are reasons to sound quite optimistic um, mm. where we are at the moment. Yeah, I think you're right, Chris. I mean, it is it is extraordinary how we've, that, that just the terminology has become current in everyday conversations and isn't and, and not just amongst you know us geeky folk who've been worrying about carbon for years but it's become part of everyday conversation and and once the language changes uh, and the narrative changes then hopefully the behaviors change to come behind them and and obviously you know it's fantastic to be able to speak to you because Scotland at yet again leading the way as it so often does on so many things, possibly not football, but, you know, don't let's Ooh. go there. Uh, low blow, a low blow. Um, but, you know, you're <laughs> maybe hosting... Maybe fair. Maybe fair. You're hosting COP, which we know is, you know, the Conference of Parties, COP26 in the autumn, in some form, virtual or, or, or actual or a combination of the two. But as we kind of draw this conversation to a close, what would you, Jacqueline Stewart, want to come out of COP? What would be your, your one wish or your one plea, if you have one, to those who are gathering in the autumn to try and make some of this climate change innovation a reality? I would hope for a really strong commitment to the challenge and targets that have already been set. And I would hope to see really firm action against those plans, you know, uh, soon as soon as after COP, not just the delivery of what, what they said. I think also I'd like to see quite a lot of sort of industries being challenged, really. I mean, I know they've been asked to say, how can they, how will they achieve their climate targets? But maybe more like you know reporting and evidence that's basically made a bit more public about how companies and like and well sectors sorry not companies just but sectors are doing to make it more apparent about how the how these things are achieved. I mean, you, many years ago, as you could imagine, the electricity system was just dominated by you know fossil fuel plant and gas and so forth. Um, but look where we are today. We, you know, you see these items on the news about how you know we've had um, most of the uh, energy that's been uh, delivered in the UK has come from renewable sources. There's been no coal as part of the sort of dispatch for energy. These are these are mega sort of statistics, really, in some sense. But if you'd looked back and said, "How would you achieve this?" If you just leave it to happen, these wouldn't have happened. So basically, the industry was incentivized, strongly incentivized to start investing in renewables. And they did that in a particular way. And as a result, many sort of kind of European countries and elsewhere have, have actually been able to, you know, like progress their climate targets, but largely from the electricity sector. And it's in these other sectors that you need an equivalent sort of stepping up uh, to try and actually achieve these things. So if COP can in any way help with things like aerospace and, you know, other large scale sectors where we can see change, then I think that will be uh, excellent, really. And we can look forward to the, the next COP to hear them basically tell us about that. So really something with a bit of teeth, I think, that moves forward on a sort of national basis. So I think Stuart covered a lot there. Maybe if I can be a bit parochial, I think, you know, bringing COP26 to the UK and to Scotland, what I'd like to do is shine a light on what you can achieve when you bring together a government with a clear ambition 
local utility operators that see the opportunity, uh, academic, not just the University of Strathclyde, but across the country, the academic sector that understand how to contribute and support that transition, and an industry that sees the opportunity for growth and for green jobs. You bring all those players together, aligned around a focus, you can actually make an impact. And that's why I'd hope COP26 would help the world see. I mean, I know we're, I know we're only small, maybe we're, we're not the best at football, although we remain the unbeaten team by England in football. <laughs> um, I also would like to see that people walk away, and that despite our conversation today, people walk away and realise that net zero isn't a thing you can build. Mm. Engineers and scientists will always innovate. That's in our blood. That's what we do. But we need the support of the institutions to, to enable the change. Yeah, we need the whole team, really, yeah. don't we? And we need yeah. to be working together as a collaborative. Absolutely fascinating to talk to you both today. Thank you so much for making the time. Jacqueline, Stewart, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for asking us. Yeah, thank you. Good, good chat. Yeah. And, and we're taking a short break over the summer, but Innovate Strathclyde will be back in the autumn. So why not subscribe via your favourite podcast app or via the website so you never miss another episode. Chris, another great conversation. It's been terrific, hasn't it? It's been brilliant. And I've been looking forward to this one just because... Uh, net zero and energy are so intrinsically linked so it's been great thank you thank you to our guests yeah pleasure thank you thanks everyone you've been listening to innovate strathclyde catch us again soon goodbye <laughs>